Hello and welcome to Archive Notes. This is a podcast series in which researchers reveal the records and stories they've uncovered in the National Archives. I'm Carrie Ann Whitworth and today I'm talking to Louise Bell, our First World War Diverse Histories researcher, about the First World War and the impact of it on disability, surgery and welfare. So Louise, can we talk about the First World War and why it was such a turning point in disability history? I guess the main thing about the First World War is it presented a whole set of new challenges to doctors, surgeons, anyone working in the medical industry at that time. Machine gun fire, shrapnel, created all these whole sort of new horrific injuries that they weren't really used to having to deal with. You've also got infection from the soil. This farming land of the Western Front meant that there was a lot of things like manure used in the soil and therefore more infection. 41,000 men came back. missing an arm or a leg or more than one and obviously something had to be done for these men so therefore there's a lot of changes things like rehabilitation prosthetic limbs industry surgery they all stem from these horrible conditions on the western front and other fronts i should say as well so in terms of the impact it wasn't just the sheer volume of injured men that were returning it was also the type of wounds that hadn't been seen before. Definitely played a huge role in changing a lot of mindset and just how these doctors had to think at the front lines. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of, of experimentation as well, especially in facial reconstruction. Harold Gillies, pioneer um, of the First World War in regards to that, he used a lot of techniques that hadn't really been used to that extent before. Um, but suddenly all these men were coming back with facial injuries that needed something done, especially to do with like skin grafting and creating new parts of faces for men. Uh, they kind of learned that you couldn't take a huge, massive chunk of skin and apply it. was more, It had to be smaller sections. And you, Gillies pioneered this technique called the tube pedicle, which meant that you moved a bit of skin to another part of the body, but it was still attached. There was still a blood flow. I don't know, you can't see what I'm doing. But nice kept it alive. <laughs> And it was healthier, so there, that meant there was also less chance of infection. There is one famous um, case where Gillies took a huge um, section of skin from a guy's chest to reconstruct his whole face. It got infected very quickly, and unfortunately, the poor guy died as a result of that. So lessons learned from that, smaller grafts, worked better. It is kind of incredible what was learned from the First World War in regards to disability medicine as a whole. And you mentioned prosthetics. Yes. What were prosthetics like prior to the First World War? <laughs> For those who don't know what prosthetics are... So explain? prosthetics, I've also said 41,000 men lost arms and legs, so the artificial arms and legs were made, technical term is prosthetics. So the industry in Britain wasn't a huge one before the First World War. I mean, most people would, if they lost, a, let's just say, a leg, and they would go get it measured for how long the new leg they needed and then it would get probably sent to them in the post. There was no proper fitting of limbs or any real kind of caring about the stump healing properly and things like that. Mm. And then you hit First World War and suddenly there's all these men coming back. And you've got people like William McEwen, who was working in Glasgow at the time, and he really cared about fitting the limbs properly for these men, making sure that the stump was healed properly, that they were comfortable when they were wearing the limb and that they could actually use it properly. So you see a lot more thought going into materials that be used to make the limbs. 
So McEwen's preference was to use willow, lighter, sturdier mm. wood as well. Um, so throughout the war, you are still getting a lot of wooden limbs. And then as you get towards the end of the war, they're thinking more about light metal that they can use, how they could make the joints move more. I mean, I've seen some incredible examples of limbs that are made in this period. And it's phenomenal. I mean, it looks like you, it even looks like you've got like muscle tone in some of the ones that I've seen and made it in metal, which was really interesting. Like they've made it so lifelike. But yeah, even with go back to the wooden limbs that they were creating in the First World War, you've got proper sort of ankle joints. There are examples of men being able to drive after losing a leg, which sounds incredible. So it's interesting you mentioned employment because I'm guessing that's kind of a reason for improving prosthetics for all the main soldiers who came back from war because it was such an enormous volume of working men. Yeah, so there's a lot of steps taken forward in rehabilitation at this time as well, which either is sport and recreation or employment, as you were saying. And, I mean, both kind of go hand in hand, because even if you're just going for a walk using your leg, you can practice how to use it properly. Again, I've read a story about even men playing golf. It's actually really beneficial, because also when you play golf, you're going over a different terrain, just not just walk down a normal path. But that really helped with men learning how to use their legs, which is very interesting. Employment was also incredible. I mean, if you look at the two main limb-fitting hospitals in Britain at this time were Erskine in Glasgow and Roehampton in London, and both had um, well huge employment opportunities for these men that had limbs fitted there or were associated with um, those centres. You've got employment bureaus set up, so they'd actually help um, find men jobs. You've got different courses that they ran, so you'd be employed in anything from cutting hair to woodwork a lot of the men also learned how to make artificial limbs as well so they could keep that going forward for the men that would come after them inevitably and that's fascinating yeah so the people who are actually experiencing the limbs had a hand are also getting to help create them i mean i think the whole huge part of this was obviously to make the men feel useful again and being able to work is also a part of that. Because I think there was a lot of feeling that these men, feeling amongst themselves as well, that they weren't very masculine anymore after they'd been injured. They kind of had to be looked after, mothered again, and therefore if they could go out and work, that was a step back to how it was before the war for them. They could be useful, contribute to society and the economy. And also at this time you've also got women working in factories. So the fact that these women are working, that these men can't, I imagine that probably caused some unhappiness. I can imagine, yeah, it must have been a strange time culturally. So these these stories that you're telling me, most of these from records you found at the National Archives? There are some very good records here that relate to artificial limbs, disability in the First World War. We've got everything from your sort of correspondence you'd expect to the plans for an artificial foot. Um, wow. I think it was the Humana foot um, that was made from different materials well. so there's felt, wood and metal in that so that's kind of a prime example of these different materials they tried to standardise prosthetic limbs as well so that it was easier just if something broke then you could easily just get the part for instead of like an individual company making it and having to try and track them down and get individual parts made so we've got plans for standardisation of limbs and the different parts and how they would all fit together of it oh my um, gosh like Ikea yeah <laughs> <laughs> made life a lot easier she had a lot of different obviously different companies 
that we're manufacturing limbs here in Britain. We've got French companies, American companies, as well as British companies doing it. So if your limb broke, you needed it to be relatively easy to get it repaired. So in terms of the visual records we might have here, um, do we have many images on the topic? We have more than you'd expect. Interestingly, there's one file um, which relates to something that the Science Museum did. And you open it up and the first thing that you see are these photographs of a man using some, I suppose, everyday tools like a hammer and things like that, and a saw. And he's quite clearly an able-bodied man, which doesn't make sense when you're looking at disability history. But it turns out they were trying to um, get see how we would use tools um, to get the sort of correct angles for when you were sawing, etc., and therefore using this to learn how to adapt tools for the men that came back and were trying to get employment. So you've got these original Im initial images, and then it moves on to plans for how to adapt these tools for these disabled men, which I think is a really interesting file. Mm. And we do have images of men kind of taking part in these sports days, I mean, very few of them are newspaper cuttings that we just happen to have relating to that. Again, nice find when you're looking through a file. And in our record relating to St Dunstan's for blind men, we have, um, there's two lovely pamphlets which kind of show men um, undertaking rehabilitation in the form of employment, so things like basket weaving and the different employment that they can undertake as well. So there's some very nice images in there if you want to see just kind of what was happening at that time. So there, are, there is a lot more than you'd expect there to be. If you were to go to the National Archives yeah. and search. Series-wise, Ministry of Pensions, Ministry of um, Munitions and Ministry of Labour are your best bets for finding things. Mm. I mean, obviously, you've got, to, you've got to play a bit with your search terms for it. I mean, artificial limbs will bring up some things. Artificial leg, artificial arm, artificial appliances as well um, comes up with some results. And if you know things like, say, company names like Hanger, who were creating limbs at this time, or Erskine, Roehampton, places like that, you can search them on Discovery and they'll bring up some results for you as well. Cool. And you mentioned personal stories. What do we have? Do we have any good, like, do we have any really nice records that you found or interesting things? We do have one very good one, which is probably my favourite thing I found in relation to this topic. And it's to do with a man called Thomas Kelly, mm -hmm. who was from Scotland. He served in the Gordon Highlanders. And unfortunately, he came back from the First World War um, in receipt of a 100% disability pension, which is quite rare. Um, because he had both of his legs amputated above the knee. When in fact, he only had about five inches of his leg left after um, whatever had happened to him. It doesn't actually say what caused this to happen. Um, I mean, I quite like him because, well, he's Scottish and he is a bit angry. <laughs> so he really, really perseveres with trying to get some form of employment after the war. Um, so initially you see him training under a bootmaker's in Stirling and he really tries hard with the training there but it's really difficult because he can't actually move around himself very well and essentially his training doesn't come to anything. He is making progress according to the man who's in charge of his training. It doesn't really end well for him but he doesn't give up. Um, he then starts his own news agents. He gets some funding from a fund set up by Harry Lauder for um, main Scottish men at this time. And he gets £40  
to start this business and he tries that for a bit and somewhat unsuccessful so he gives it to his sister I don't really know if that's a great present for her or what but I wonder if, if he got an income from it even though his sister owned that it could be it yeah because again it doesn't really explain so is this all in one document? it's all in one document about this mm. man so I'd actually found it looking up um, Erskine Hospital and there's this wonderful massive box of um, stuff from Ministry of Labour turned off my shelf and and then there's this great story inside it so again persevere with stuff and you're researching this because you will get large boxes of documents and go I don't really want to do this but it does pay off um, so linking that back to Thomas Kelly he's mentioned this file because he then applies to Erskine to learn how to do basket weaving which is a very popular um, trade for men to be trained up in um, at this time and he's for, for men who have come back with a disability yeah with disability so I mean right. it's everything from losing an arm or a leg to people suffering from shell shock and blind men as well mm-hmm. that's a very popular thing for them to be trained up in and he's applying to Erskine to do more training and this is where he starts to get a bit angry about it because he's not heard back whether or not he can actually do his training at Erskine um, I think there's issues surrounding the fact that he's already technically had training, but it wasn't the sort of training set out by the government through things like Erskine. It was his kind of own private training he'd undertaken in his own local area um, for ease. So so um, in, his le- in this letter that he writes, which kind of is the part that really grabbed me, and this is why I kind of love this so much, is he says that there was not so much red tape to go through in August 1914, when the country was crying for men and I left a good job to join the soldiers. But now when I'm a maimed and not fit for manual labour, this country has no further use for us, yet it was to be a country fit for heroes to live in. So in a way, Mm. it feels like... I mean, he's very angry about his situation, but disheartened by it. I mean, he doesn't give up, which is, I think, a huge testament to his character. I think many men, many women would probably... Feel a bit hopeless in this situation. Um, I mean, okay, we don't actually know what happens to him. I don't know if he actually gets undertaken his training. Um, I assume he never actually gets fitted with um, artificial legs because of how little stump there would be left for that. Um, but it sounds like a bad note to end that story one, doesn't it? But it wasn't the case for most men. Mm. It's interesting to see that sentiment that he expresses. I, I mean, I personally didn't know of him whether men felt they could express any yeah. anger or disappointment. I mean, I always think this kind of, this sort of disability, this sort of prosthetic side of it is always kind of underlooked. I mean, shell shock, obviously hugely important. I'm not disparaging that at all. But, yeah, um, yeah when I started doing this research, there, there isn't really much out there. I think there's more and more happening now as we're in the centenary, but... They also had a significant impact on surgery as well because you um, you've talked before about what happened with um, things like facial reconstruction and what the First World War, all the, the impact the First World War had on um, cosmetic surgery to an extent. Yeah, I mean, I guess it kind of was the sort of start of cosmetic surgery in that respect. I mean, mm. also you talked about Harold Gillies and how he was this pioneering surgeon, but he cared a lot about how a man would look after surgery. It wasn't just practical, like the limbs were. Facial reconstruction was more of a, let's see if we can make you still a very handsome man, things like that. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, a lot of the injuries 
you could deal with it, facial injuries, you could deal with with surgery, but some people don't want to undergo surgery, especially with some of the risks that we've already spoke about. Um, so there were facial masks made as well. And it was all it was artists that led that sort of side of things. So again, you're getting the sort of aesthetic side of things again coming through. But we don't have documents on that. We here don't. In it's, facial reconstruction is a very difficult thing that I've been I've been trying to work on it for months now and you occasionally get the sort of small thing. We have a few medal cards relating to some of the men that Gillies performed surgery on. We also have a document where Gillies is talking at the Festival of Britain and he talks back on his time in the First World War so you get a nice insight into what he was thinking through that. Oh wow, so were they in the Festival of Britain? They are, yes. Amazing. But apart from that, I've not uncovered a great deal more than that. There's a few mentions of... So Gillies started a hospital in 1917 in Sidcup, which was a sort of pioneering facial reconstruction hospital at the time. And we've got a few mentions of that within in our PIN 26 files, which are the Ministry of Pensions files for First World War. Um, if you look at, say, burns injuries, you can a lot of these men have went to Sidcup to undergo treatment. So you get nice little glimpses like that, but it's not just attended Sidcup. There are a few that kind of explain a few of the operations they went through, which again, you know that they are techniques that Gillies pioneered. Again, you'll see them mentioned, but you've really got to search for that. And it's more of a fluke when you find it than actually something you can just easily search on our catalogue, unfortunately. I was thinking about the uh, the Thomas Kelly uh, story, actually, and I wondered whether you've spent any time investigating his life more in depth. I haven't. That is kind of my next goal is to try and look into him. I really, really have to. Yeah, and especially, I mean, what his life was like. So It would be interesting to find out about, say, for example, what his injury was and what happened to him. Exactly. I'd really like to know that. I'd be really fascinated to... Maybe if anybody's listening. Exactly. If you know it, please (laughs) tell me. Well, thank you. No problem. If anyone is interested in exploring this topic further, we have a research guide called Disability History in the help with your research section of our website and you can also find blogs on the subject at blog.nationalarchives.gov.uk and also listen out for our next archive notes podcast next month this podcast is copyright the national archives all rights reserved it is available for reuse under the terms of the open government license